0: I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. I have been looking forward to sharing this conversation with all of you so, so much. Today, I'm talking with someone whose work is so special to me. I remember opening up my Audible app one day and I was scrolling through new releases and I saw the title of this book and I thought, I don't even care what this book might be about. The title sold me. It's called It's Okay That You're Not Okay." I downloaded it and I turned it on. This book, her story, the explanation of grief, this changed everything for me. After having Ford, I didn't know I could use the word grief. But the longer I listened to this book, the more I finally had an answer to what I had been consumed with. I thought the word grief was only allowed in death. And when I discovered that this is what I was actually feeling, it was so comforting and such a point of transformation for me. This book has been such a close companion and I think it will be for so many of you. There's so much loss in the rare disease community, and I think like grief, it doesn't matter where you come from it and what your circumstance is, it's a universal thing. I'll make an episode about (laughs) my perspective and uh, just get going on this episode because it's chock full of so many things. A heads up that there is some swearing in this episode. I figured if there was one topic that deserved to have some swearing in it, it's this one. I really encourage you to purchase this book from one of your favorite local bookshops or listen to her read it herself on Audible. I'm going to have all of the things you need in the show notes, and there's a lot of it, to join her community and check out all the amazing things that she holds. She's also just released a new illustrated guided journal which is so cool. It's called How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed. I am just so, so, so honored to introduce you to her. She's a psychotherapist, a writer, a grief advocate, and a communication expert dedicated to helping people live through things they never thought that they would have to face. She created an online community and just has numerous resources helping to, uh, she helps people survive some of the hardest experiences of their life. And to also learn the skills that they need to love themselves and each other better. Please enjoy my conversation with Megan Devine. Hello, Megan Devine. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. You're like one of my <laughs> one of my people. Um, I've had you in my head for a couple of years now. Uh, you wrote the most incredible book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And that book really changed my life. So I, I'm just so, so grateful that I'm having the opportunity to actually talk to you right now.
1: I love those stories, right? Like writing, writing is a really solitary experience and to, I'm really fortunate that I get so many messages and, and DMs and tags and all of these things from people saying, you know, I've, I've had your voice in my head for years. Uh, It's really neat as a as a writer to have that kind of feedback. So thank you.
0: Mm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Megan, for, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know you and why this book even came about, uh, would you please give us a little background on the road that took you here?
1: Sure. So I've been a psychotherapist for, I, I, I answer this question a lot and I always have to count. It's something like <laughs> 18 or so years now. Uh, I've been a therapist for a long time. And I was in private practice. I worked with a lot of trauma histories, trauma stories. I worked with a lot of medical doctors and therapists who were dealing with loss in their practices. I was really good at what I did, and then, uh, and then my partner died in an accident. And I wanted to call all of my all of my clients and tell them that I didn't know what I was talking about. I do know that I did good work, but I think once you enter into these territories of loss, your perspective changes. For me, what I saw was the way that we talk about grief in this culture is deeply, deeply flawed. Even when we bring good listening skills and good reflective skills into our experience with, with sitting with people in loss, it usually is seated on this foundation of grief is something that you need to get over. You need to put the past behind you. You need to be resilient. You need to look on the bright side and find gratitude. All of these things that we sort of spit out in the face of pain, our own and other people's pain, and that is such a ingrained way of looking at the world. And I think Matt's death and my immersion in that part of the sort of the loss continuum made me really see. Uh, I I think I, I often like talk about the emperor's new clothes right we know that that story where the emperor wants everybody to tell him how gorgeous his clothing looks but it's he's actually naked it's it's something that we all agree to pretend and I I can't pretend that we do grief well in this culture anymore and and I can't let other people pretend about it if I can help it right so. Actually, when Matt died, I quit my practice. I closed my practice. I never saw those clients again. And I swore I would never go back. I would never sit in that chair again. And I would never be a clinician and and work in that way. But having experienced how badly, even with good intentions, how poorly we deal with grief in this culture, as I've said, and how much people really wanted to help and they didn't know how. They were sort of doing what they'd been trained to do which was to cheer me up and look on the bright side and remind me that I was strong and confident and all these things. I knew that I could say something about it. I knew that I could make things different for grieving people if I elected to use my voice in the way that I've used it. Right. So it only took a couple of years of me insisting that I was never going to talk about this stuff publicly to start coming back and talking about this stuff publicly and speaking about it and training and writing books to do what I could to make sure that grieving people feel more heard and supported in whatever has erupted in their lives. Really the way to make things better for grieving people is to change the world around them so that everybody has better skills to deliver the good intentions that they most want to deliver. So that is my very uh, slightly disjointed spiel about Who I am and what I do and how I got here. So the very, very short version is I'm a psychotherapist, an author and a grief advocate. And I talk all the time about the ways that we get grief wrong and what to do better for us and for others.
0: I'm so sorry for the loss of Matt. And I heard you say something once uh, that you have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for the world. And I think you just put that you paraphrased that so well with what journey you're on in trying to change the landscape and change the change how we even define grief. What do you think some of the misconceptions are about it? Because I know for me, even just finding your book, I didn't know what I was going through. I didn't know I could call it grief. So what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that we all have about it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point there that if we think about grief, air quotes here, if we think about grief at all, it's usually... It usually belongs only to death. And certainly I talk a lot about grief related to death, but that's not the only way that we grieve. I think now in the pandemic, we're all experiencing some form of loss, whether that's the loss of daily routine, the loss of a job, the loss of a sense of what we thought our world was and what it actually is, right up through chronic illness and injury and the death of the people we care about. So grief is a spectrum. And you get to claim grief for yourself if that is what feels right for you. I think we also tend to do this thing where like, oh, I'm not allowed to be grieving because other people have it worse, right? I still have a roof over my head. Uh, at least I had my person for as long as I did. I think in the, in the chronic illness and disability community, it can be like, I don't have it as bad as some other people. At least I have some mobility, right? Like we, we do this thing where we demote ourselves. We demote our own experience because other people, we decide that other people have more of a right to be grieving, right? So there's, I think there's one core misconception about grief is that it only belongs to death. And then even then, there are variations or, or grades as to who is more deserving of grief In death, right? Like you're not supposed to grieve too heavily if it was a grandparent who died at the end of a very long life versus your baby died from an illness at 18 months, right? So there's that idea in there too, that some griefs are more valid than others. That gets really tricky to talk about though. If we start talking about um, all grief is valid, I think some people jump in and go, wait, you're saying that the death of somebody's grandparent at 107 years old is just as bad as the death of my child at 18 months, that is a huge thing that we have wrong. The fact that all grief is valid does not mean that all grief is the same. We can't conflate losses and just sort of say everything is equal because that's not accurate, right? And again, we don't want to get into a ranking system as to whose is worse, but I think anytime we try to level a playing field and make everybody all the same we're doing it wrong i can't not bring in cultural and structural issues when i when i talk about grief so this idea that we can just say all loss is important all loss is the same is like you know sort of this whitewashing thing of saying we're all one no we're not We can't say things like we're all one being having all the same experience because that erases things like systemic racism, ableism, all of the different things that make individual lives more challenging just because of the structural inequities. So I can totally geek out on all of that stuff, but I think that is a really important point to drill into sometimes that all grief is valid. You have a right to claim that you're in pain you have a right to not have to defend your pain or to situate it in some grand spectrum of which is worse and which is more valid all of that is true at the same time we don't want to claim or erase differences or erase impact of loss or situation or environment or structure as a way to sort of paint a rosy picture of what it's like to be human right if we can be curious about the different ways we grieve that is a way for us to come together and talk about it, to meet each person's loss, each person's grief, each person's life with curiosity, instead of trying to squish everything into a one size fits all package, because we're never going to fit.
0: I love the way you put that. So you say a lot in your book that sometimes things
1: just can't be fixed,
0: and they must be carried.
1: What exactly do you mean by that? So some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried as sort of the the signature line here. We live in a problem solution culture, right? Everything is a problem to be solved. If you haven't fixed it, you just haven't tried hard enough or you're not done yet. That idea, that mentality is stitched into every facet of of human life, especially in Western cultures, um, though it certainly exists in other cultures as well not everything has a solution. Things do not always work out for the best. Things do not always work out in the end. There's that saying that says like, um, things always work out in the end. And if they haven't worked out, it's not the end yet. Like makes me want to throat punch people (laughs) like shit does not work out all the time. Bad things happen that can't be redeemed right? Not everything has a silver lining. Sometimes shitty things just exist. In fact, a lot of times shitty things just exist, right? It's not our job as humans to rise above everything and make everything work out beautifully. That's just not realistic. All you have to do is look at the non-human natural world to know that this is true. Creatures get eaten, creatures get injured, the environment suffers, there are earthquakes and natural disasters like Nothing fits into that construct that we have that everything always works out for the best. I mean, we think about it like an actual tangible application of that mindset is, you know, somebody looking at you or looking at me and saying, this happened to you so that you could become a powerful voice for others. Like, fuck you. As though I needed Matt to die to be of use in the world, as though you needed Ford's illness in order to be able to be of use in the world. Like that is garbage. Where that gets tricky, I think sometimes I get pushback where people say, like, you're just negative. Like, I'm not negative, I'm telling the truth. This is what it's like to be human. Hard shit happens.
0: Yeah. And I think that's why this topic of grief in general has just been so glossed over and buried at the same time for people. And I love that you've brought this breath of modernness to it and really just an open, continuous conversation about how it's different, how it shows up, how people can show up. And you've created this movement that has really started to, I don't necessarily want to use the word heal, but you've brought people to a place where they can acknowledge
1: yeah. I think that's a, a good distinction too. Like, I, I love that you're like, mm, I don't know about using the word healed here because healed again, is part of that foundation that we sort of stand on culturally and clinically that says like healed is your, is your target destination. And once you've reached it, you're done, um, which is you know not how humans work. But I think that the biggest thing that happens when we start telling the truth about grief and we let people tell the truth about their own experience, they get to just be in pain, which seems really weird. But if you think about what happens when you're grieving, so if you think about an experience that you've had where you try to talk about what's going on for you, you're having a really tough day with your child or you're battling the medical field or whatever, you just say what's happening and somebody pretty quickly comes in and says, you'll get through this, don't worry, you're really strong, or at least you have this going on for you or whatever. Like It puts you in the position of having to defend your grief and defend your experience. So that need to defend the truth of your own experience causes annoyance, certainly, but it also causes suffering, right? You're expending energy to defend your right to feel how you feel instead of feeling supported inside whatever's happening. It diminishes it all around. Yeah, exactly. Like, why should you have to defend the fact that today is a rough day, right? If you're having a rough day... I can actually be of support to you by saying, that sounds really impossible. Would you like me to deliver dinner to you? Right? Or that sounds really hard. Do you want to tell me about it? Or what would feel useful right now? Do you want to vent about it? Do you want to problem solve? Do you want me to call up your doctor and yell at them? Like, what can I do?
0: Would you say that this is like probably one of the biggest common threads, maybe in your own experience after Matt died or with the people that you work with all the time of having the luxury of being devastated, and people not showing up in the correct ways. Is that one of like the
1: hardest parts about grief? I honestly think that's the hardest part, right? Like I make a distinction in the book between pain and suffering. So pain is now this is my interpretation. Other people have other interpretations, totally fine room for everybody. But my distinctions here. So pain is pure. It's sort of, you know, you have a devastating diagnosis or your person dies or whatever, the pain of that is not up for debate. It just exists. Suffering on the other hand is like when people judge you or diminish you for your process, or you lost your job on top of that. And now you have to go work 16 jobs and you don't really have time to pay attention to your own grief and listen to yourself. Like all of that stuff that gets loaded on top of the central pain For me, that's suffering. So a huge source of suffering for grieving people is how their friends and family and clinicians and providers respond to their pain. So how do we show up, Megan? How do we be good companions? (laughs) How do we do this? How do we get better? So I love the impulse to fix things, right? It's a very human thing. It's really hard to watch somebody you care about be in pain. It's hard to watch them suffer. You want to make it better. I love that impulse. We don't want to take that impulse away from people. What I want you to do is recognize your impulse to make things better. Take a moment, take a pause and think about what could I do that would feel supportive for this person in this moment, right? We sort of want to interrupt that impulse to fix because if we just jump on that impulse, we're going to come through with the skills and approaches we've been taught and we've already discussed that those skills and impulses that we've been taught are wrong. Um, not your fault; you learned it that way. But now that we know that there's something different here or something better, we we got to start changing our changing our patterns and changing our our ways here. So let's say you you know you call me up and you say I'm having a really really shitty day. Ford didn't sleep and he's being a total brat, and I'm late for this over here and this over here. So if I'm not paying attention, I might go into Hey, that sounds really hard, but you know we should do this over here. And have you tried this? And let me give you all of this advice. Ah, so not useful, right? So instead, an example of a better response might be: that all sounds really difficult. Here are two ways that I can think of to support you right now. Let me know if you want one of these. So one, I can listen to you vent, I've got all day for you. Or I can take some of the things off of your to-do list. Would either of those things feel helpful right now? It puts sovereignty back in your lap. It puts agency back in your lap. If I can respond to you that way and not assume what you need, not jump in with solutions for you, but instead acknowledge what you just shared and offer things that I know how to offer and ask, would you like them? Right? That does a few things. One, it lets you feel heard first. I didn't just jump in with solutions. I didn't try to cheer you up. I heard what you told me. That is humongously powerful medicine, right? Acknowledgement is some of the best medicine we have, letting people feel heard in what they're saying from the small things to the big things. And then the second thing is based on what you know of the person, right? If I know that sometimes you just need to vent and sometimes you just need somebody to swoop in and fix a few things that can be fixed for you, then I can offer those things. The kind of key last step is to turn it back to you and say, Do either of those things feel useful or would that feel useful for you? Or is there something else that I could help you with right now? When you're living in grief, again, grief of any kind, it feels like stuff is happening to you that you don't have any choice in. So to be able to give your grieving person back some choice, some power over their own life, some agency, that is also immensely powerful.
0: I love the reminder what you said when you said interrupt the impulse to fix that needs to be like on a little note for so many <laughs> because we do right like you like you said it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful impulse that we want to fix but there are things that can't be fixed and fixing them isn't necessarily
1: what one needs right I think the the impulse is responding to somebody's pain with like a desire to take some kind of action. Right, I want to remove that pain, and the the thing that we've been taught is fix it. So the impulse is not wrong; it's human, it's what we've been sort of ingrained and taught to do with that impulse. That's where the problem is. You want to fix a problem, fix that problem, <laughs> fix, break the habit of fixing things. Totally. That's, that's <laughs> the problem. And even so, I, I can hear some of the pushback when I say things like that. That like. You've got a grieving person whose life just went completely sideways. They're exhausted. They don't have the capacity to figure out what they need, who could possibly fill those needs, and then overcome all of the very normal human aversion to asking for help in order to tell you what they need. So when I say, um, you know, if, if you're having a bad day and you're texting me and you're like, this day fucking sucks and I can't do this and I can't do this. If I come back with, tell me how I can help you, Again, it's not that that is wrong. It might just not be effective, right? Because I'm asking you to spare some bandwidth that you probably don't have to come up with solutions that would help you feel better and then offer me the menu, right? So where possible as a support person, as a friend or an ally, it's awesome if you can do that work yourself, if you can draw from what you know of your friend or your client or your family member. And offer some solid, tangible actions that you are able and willing to take rather than put that burden on them to ask them to come up with things for you. That's super tricky because I just said two almost contradictory things. One was let your grieving person lead, give them agency, let them make decisions about what would feel helpful and not feel helpful. And then two minutes later, I said, don't make them do that work for you. They're not mutually exclusive. So to the best of your ability, leaning on what you know of your person, offer some tangible things that you could do, acknowledge and validate what they just shared with you and the reality of their experience. To the best of your ability, and even a little beyond the best of your ability, try not to ask them to identify what they need for you. Make space for them to not know what the hell they need because they probably don't know.
0: Speaking of acknowledging their reality, another thing that I think would be important to be brought to the table that I've heard you speak on, on this podcast, the grocery store gets brought up often, Megan. It can be a really traumatizing space to be in when you're going through this specific type of lifestyle and doctor's appointments and death of family all around you in your friends and your family circles and it's an activating place. And I just wanted you to maybe speak on that setting as an example of respecting people's reality and minding their boundaries.
1: Mind your own business (laughs) at the grocery store and everywhere else. Yeah.
0: I think it's a good setting for people to realize (laughs) that in any, in any way, right? Like in any walk that they're, that they're in.
1: Yeah. So, Let's talk about the grocery store in general first, just in case somebody's like, What are you talking about? What's so bad about the grocery store? Okay, there is something about the grocery store that is just impossible. Okay, so let's give you an example here. So if I'm grieving, the grocery store is so full of reminders of daily intimate life, it can be really overwhelming you go to the grocery store and you think it's just like this normal activity. It's like so boring. You can do it in your sleep. You do it all the time. But your sister died two weeks ago and you go to the grocery store and you go to reach for her favorite box of tea so that you have it when she comes over to visit. And just as your hand is about to grab that box, you go, she's dead. So the grocery store is where we do these sort of routines of daily living these intimate acts of feeding and being nourished and thinking of our people and buying things that they like because we have a family to shop for and there's parts for a very long time there's there are parts of your brain that didn't get the memo that they died or that they their illness has progressed to such a point where they can't take solid food anymore and your body fulfills that habit of reaching for that box of tea or that box of cereal or those bananas and at some point, that memo kicks in and goes, I don't need that anymore. And that intimate, visceral sucker punch is so intense. And here you are just trying to get your Cheerios and get the hell out of the store. But you're in the middle of that moment and your neighbor's sister's co-workers, dog sitter sees you and thinks, oh, right. Didn't her baby get sick? And decides that is the moment where they should walk over and tap you on the arm and tilt their head in that special way that they do and say, how are you really? I heard that your baby was sick. What happened? There is something about the grocery store that makes people forget their manners. We run into people and seeing them reminds us of We heard something about their loss. And because we're good people, we have that impulse to connect. We want to connect and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Not understanding that there is a right place and a right time to bring up intimate, emotional, interior experience. And the produce section is not it. Just because you remembered the loss does not make the meat section or the deli section the place for somebody to share their soul with you. Check yourself. (laughs) And again, this is like, that impulse is great. That impulse is great. I'm going to see somebody at the grocery store, although not now because I'm not entering any buildings. Curbside delivery is your friend. But you know, eventually when people are vaccinated and we go back and you see somebody, I see somebody at the grocery store, I see somebody at the coffee shop. And I remember, oh shit. I remember reading something that they posted that their dad had COVID. I should check in with them. That's not a bad impulse. I want to pause there and ask myself, is this the right time and place to ask them about their father? I'm going to tell you the answer is no. (laughs) I don't care what the situation is. If you are out in public, the answer is no, it is not the right time. (laughs) Right? Again, I'm going to say two seemingly contradictory things because here's the other thing. Don't avoid your grieving person when you see them at the grocery store I have seen this happen to me and I have seen it or heard of it happening to so many people. You're out, you're at the grocery store, you see someone see you, and then they purposely turn around about face and go to another aisle to avoid you. We see you. We get that you're uncomfortable, you feel awkward, you don't know what to say, so you hightail it out of there to avoid the awkward. Well, you just made it awkward. Okay. So again, I just told you two seemingly contradictory things. Do not invade somebody's personal space in a public arena and two don't avoid them. So what the hell are you supposed to do? I am a really, really big fan of eye contact from a distance, a little short nod of the head. The thing that I usually do is if I catch somebody's eye, I might put my hand on my heart or my hand on my chest and give them just a little nod. It's a way to say, I see you I respect your space, but I want you to know that I, I acknowledge you and I'm going to go about my business right now and give you some space. That is a beautiful, kind, respectful gesture. It isn't one or the other. You don't either have to completely avoid and ignore somebody or get all up in their business. You can respectfully from a distance, maintaining good boundaries, let somebody know that you see them and you're thinking of them. It's not hard. No, it's not
0: hard. And I think that's such a powerful example for people. And I love that you put it out there like that because it's so simple to acknowledge someone's pain and not cross boundaries, you would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, a lot of this is simple, right? The difference between simple and easy, right? Simple is the opposite of complicated. Me seeing you catching your eye in the grocery store, putting my hand over my heart and just giving you a nod and a little short bit of eye contact, not a stare. That's very simple. That's not a complicated gesture. It's not easy. Easy being the opposite of hard. This kind of emotional territory is not easy, but it is simple right? You don't need to memorize a whole bunch of different scripts. You don't need to memorize what do I do if we're in this situation and this person had this kind of loss versus this other kind of loss over here. You don't need to memorize all of that shit. You need to remember that everybody's experience is valid and that you don't have a right for details or um, deep emotional sharing (laughs) in, in the checkout line. Like curious and respectful of other people's lived reality. Acknowledge it And give them space to come towards you. That is not complicated.
0: So many of the people in the rare disease community have so many different layers or different journeys of grief, starting from having this child that is different than they expected, having this parenthood journey that is different than they expected, to having a diagnosis that is going to ultimately shorten someone's lifespan and then does. What would you say to the family who had to go through all of those and not feel like maybe they don't have the right to feel ultimate grief because they've had notice?
1: hmm Oh, that's a good one. So you said, you said a lot in there, right? So we'll take it apart a little bit. One, like you're right, there are so many different paths, so many different outcomes, and so many different things to grieve. You've got folks who got a rare disease diagnosis in utero and made decisions to terminate for medical reasons. And then you've got folks who went through with birth, right? And then you've got folks who, you know, just all of these different outcomes and different paths and different experiences. No one of them is correct. No one of them is incorrect, right? So again, we come back to sovereignty, validation, respect for each person and each family's experience and what leads them to make the choices and the decisions that felt correct for their family. So we always wanna greet any, any other family story and even every person within a family, right? Because a family is not a, a single entity. There are parents and grandparents and siblings and, and the child themselves and all of these things, all of these different perspectives and valid experiences to acknowledge and honor. So I think that curiosity and respect for each experience is, is one important thing to have in our minds here. And I love that you brought up the, the grief that's involved with grieving the loss of the child you expected or dreamed of or wanted to have. One of the things that happens often in these types of experience is like it's almost like you don't get to grieve the child you expected or wanted to have because at least your child is alive. At least you have this outcome and not everybody gets to have that outcome. So there's this competition, sometimes in ourselves and sometimes with others, about whose experience is more valid than the other. So the first thing I want to do is acknowledge that those competitions happen all the time, all the time. So if you're experiencing that, if you felt that, it sucks. And sometimes we do that to ourselves, right? That internalized judgment, that internalized naysayer voice that says, how dare you? probably don't have time to get into it. And I'm certainly not the expert in this, but I think there's also this like, because a child with a disorder or a disability or a disease of any kind is often sort of perceived as a source of pity that as a parent or a guardian or a caretaker or an advocate, you have to be always positive as a way to protect your child from the negativity of the world. And in a way that can make you feel like you don't have the space to be angry Or to be sad, or to be frustrated, or heartbroken, or grieving. Because you always, in some ways, have to be on to ferociously protect your child's right to be who they are. So, all of those feelings are valid. They're all valid. Like, however, your heart and your mind and your body responds to what is yours to live is correct. I want people to listen to that
0: part over and over because (laughs) I hear this so many times from people. The comparison of life is, its it can be so poisonous and restricting. I would like to ask you about what you say when you talk about tending the organism for these people in
1: what you call the impact zone. So impact, impact zone is the phrase that I used uh, several years ago to talk about those first like hours, days, weeks, months after the... <laughs> big air quotes here, disruptive event. We use disruptive event right now because like it might be a death, it might be an accident, it might be who knows, but like whatever moment or collection of moments that marks the before and the after. The just little side note here, the reason that I have tried to stop using impact zone is that language can be challenging for people whose death or loss or injury was created by impact. So that can be hard for folks who um, lost somebody due to a car accident, for example. So impact is a word I'm trying to use less, still sometimes use it. We also use like devastation zone. I don't know, event. Anyway. Taking uh, away the imagery. I totally get that. Yeah. So like that, that moment (laughs) that there's no good replacement for it, which is yet that I've found. So it's just, you know, language is a tricky beast sometimes, but, um, that concept of tending the organism. So, um, when Matt died, one of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends, that was her standby for me was like, whenever she would check in with me, she would be like, you know, that you can't fix this. I can't bring him back for you as much as I want to. I cannot erase this for you. You need to help your body withstand what is happening. And you do that by tending the organism. So tending the organism are the things that you do to keep your physical vessel (laughs) as strong, flexible and stable as it can be to contain what it has to hold. So those are things like drinking water, getting as much sleep as you're able, rest as you're able, um, moving your body in whatever ways your body can move, and eating nourishing food in whatever packages you can get it in there. Some people um, completely lose their appetites, and that's absolutely understandable. I'm I'm wired that way. I don't eat under stress, so um, you know nutrient dense packages of food as often and frequently as you can. Some people eat a lot in response to life stressors and challenging experiences. So you know being mindful of that. What kind of fuel does your body need in order to be Um, as stable as it can be to hold what is unfolding and what is. There's so much that can't be fixed inside these things. We want to look at what actually is largely under our control. What are the things that you can do that make this experience not good because nothing will do that, but what can you do to help support yourself so that it sucks a little less? Tending the organism, what are the physical things that you can do to make this a more supported process for you. Another thing that's related to that is sort of mapping out for yourself what things make this worse and what things make it suck less. Again, I don't go to what makes this better because I don't think better in those early days, weeks, months um, is is a reasonable goal to reach for. I don't, nothing's gonna make anything better, but there are definitely things that make things worse. So if I use myself for an example, as I said, I tend to not eat under stress. So if I hadn't eaten anything except for the cream in my tea and possibly a cupcake for three days in a row, I'm going to have much worse emotional regulation in non-therapist terms. I'm going to be a fucking wreck. My emotions are going to be all over the place. I'm going to be more irritable. Things are going to hit me harder. I'm not going to be able to stop sobbing at the grocery store if I worked myself into going to the grocery store that's what i'm talking about here that's that the mechanism of action i'm talking about like what things can you do to make the edges a little bit softer if you know that you ha- that when you don't eat or when you eat all sugar frosted whatever the hell they are when you eat like really sugary cereal you tend to have more flashbacks and you tend to have more headaches that's good information right? Because we don't want to add flashbacks and headaches to what you're already carrying. So it's a little bit of sort of personal sleuthing. What things make this feel worse for me and what things make it suck a little bit less? I think a great image for this is on um, big ocean liners. They have stabilizers so that when the seas get rough, the stabilizers keep you, person on the ship, from being thrown around your cabin, right? It doesn't change the fact that the seas are choppy. What it does is give you more of a little bubble of calm inside that storm so you don't get hurled into the walls. That's what we're looking for. What are your stabilizers? How can you boost your stabilizers so that all you have to do is feel what you're feeling instead of poking at it with a sharp stick and making it worse?
0: I love the way you speak about it. And I love the way you clarify your language throughout your book. And when you're talking about it, even when you say you may be contradicting yourself, anyone who's trying to listen to what you're saying is so following you. It's really amazing. And I love your idea of, yeah, what you say too is making that landing when you crash a little softer, <laughs> softening the edges.
1: Yeah. And again, it's that, it's that foundational shift. We're not trying to take your pain away. That is not possible. It's not possible. And when we accept that and we stand in that and we recognize that in ourselves and for each other, then we can focus on the things that we do have power to change. My job is not to take somebody's pain away from them. It is to take the edges off and give them a soft place to fall apart. It is to take up the slack in the ordinary world so that this person doesn't have to come out of their pain or stop facing what they're facing in order to get the recycling to the curb or pick up the prescriptions or take the dog for a walk, right? What can I do with my impulse to love you that actually validates and supports what you're going through instead of trying to take what you're going through away from you? So what about those who need to know if they are grieving normally or not? Everybody's grieving normally. Let's, how do we'll just, we know? We can make a blanket statement here. <laughs> are you grieving, and you're having some feelings? You are normal. Thank you. Okay, you're absolutely yeah. right. Thank you for <laughs> okay, thank you for let's... saying
0: that. I will re- rephrase my question because <laughs> thank you. Yes, kind of the antithesis of this conversation, right? When you are grieving, and perhaps it has become unsafe in some way, how do we
1: recognize those signs? Excellent clarification. Okay. So what we're talking about here is when do I know that my very big feelings might need some extra eyes on them or some extra support? And that's true, whether you're the grieving person or you're watching somebody you care about, because one of the things that people support people really want to know is, um, when do they need help? Right? Because grief is messy. The reason that we have such a fix it resilience, move on, look on the bright side, cheer up thing is because grief is fucking terrifying to watch. It is a very big, deep, emotional experience. And if we can't make the person cheer up, then we at least need to be able to tell them they're doing it wrong. (laughs) Right? So One thing, because we don't talk about the reality of grief, most people don't realize that what they're going through is normal, as messy as it is. So things like memory loss, cognition changes, not being able to read, putting your keys in the freezer, having a really short temper, um, thinking that you imagined the person, any of those, like, if you can ask it, I will tell you it is normal. Everybody deserves support in a manner that feels supportive to them. So this isn't about when should you quote unquote, get help. Because I think everybody grieving or not grieving deserves excellent, qualified, skilled help in their corner, just because life is hard. So this isn't about when should you get help, because I I don't think that there's a a line where somebody needs help versus somebody doesn't need help. I think we all need support (laughs) and help. I think that that language can be sort of an accidental, inadvertent shaming of quote unquote needing help, right? it got bad enough. You couldn't handle it enough. It got dicey or scary enough that you had to go outside of yourself for support. So throwing that out there, mindful of language choices and the ways that we accidentally shame ourselves or others. Uh, It doesn't have to get bad in order for you to need support and validation and um, kindness underneath you. So there's that. You don't have to wait to reach out and get additional or better support for yourself. So there's one thing. Second thing, if you aren't quite sure where normal grief turns into a safety situation, um, whether it's for you or for somebody else, the the big things are um, self-harm and suicidality, right? So if you are feeling like, okay, backing up a little bit, there is a big difference between being Pissed off that you keep waking up in the morning and being actually suicidal, right? There's a big difference there, but because we tend to freak out whenever suicidality or not being that psyched about being alive comes up as a topic of conversation, most people don't talk about those experiences of feeling not that psyched to still be here. Uh, Some of my widow friends and I used to talk about, like, I'm not suicidal, but if a piano was falling from the sky, I would not move quickly to get away from it right? That's an example of not being psyched to be alive, but not being actively suicidal, right? I want to normalize that feeling and that those thoughts. If you are really feeling though, like I don't want to do this anymore. And starting to think about how you would end your life, what you would do to yourself. That is a time when you absolutely need to reach out, text the crisis line, call a support line, reach out to a therapist, let somebody know that those thoughts even for a moment felt logical and realistic those are times that you really do need to let people in because we want to keep you safe even if you don't want to be here right so those are the times to get concerned if you're if you're finding yourself considering self-harm or you're finding yourself contemplating suicide those are the two biggest things when i would say absolutely reach out get help speak to somebody. Crisis Text Line is awesome in the States. I also tell people it's a really good idea to reach out to your resources before you need them. Crisis text line is a great example. Um, A lot of people hate using the phone even under the best of circumstances. So the thought of like calling on the phone with your actual voice, an 800 number to talk to some stranger when you're feeling like you'd like to die, that is several steps too far for a lot of people. So this is one of the reasons that I like the text-based lines. You don't have to use your actual voice. You can text, it feels safer. Um, But also if you check them out when you don't need them, you know what to expect. It is a known entity. Making it familiar makes it that much easier to reach out when you do need the help. There's just so many special steps. And
0: and you even speak about it as grief in general, right? Like learn about grief before the devastation. Learn about how to talk about it. Learn about how to recognize it. Learn about how to be in it before
1: it happens. Exactly. So there, there are a few things here. One, if we're going to stick with when do you need help, so let's finish up this one first, then we'll go to the the second piece that you just brought up. So when you need help, or when you're you're concerned about somebody else, safety issues are the big thing. So if you're concerned about your friend, who is grieving the loss of their child or their baby to miscarriage, and You're a little concerned because they're not answering the phone or they seem really depressed or they're crying or whatever, but you're also concerned because like, I'm not sure if they're actually suicidal. Say something. You are not going to quote unquote, make somebody suicidal by voicing your concern and asking some questions. So it's okay to say something like, I really have no idea what it's like to be you right now. I'm a little bit concerned about your safety because of this, this, and this. Um, Can we talk about that? Can we talk about whether, you know, where you are, are you feeling suicidal? I want you to know that I'm a person you can talk to about that. It's okay to bring up your concerns. The, the thing is that we tend to act out of our anxiety and concern instead of addressing it. And what that looks like is, so if if I'm concerned about you, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not really sure if she's suicidal or not. If I am acting out of my concern instead of addressing it, I'm going to be like, so what's on your plan for today? Uh huh. And then what are you gonna do? I see. And so, like, um, I wonder. Like, did you hear? Did you see that Kate Spade died by suicide? Like, what do you think about that? I am completely dancing around the elephant. I'm making an ass out of myself, and all I'm going to do is make you never ever want to talk to me. A much more effective and <laughs> grown up skilled uh, approach is to say. I'm actually concerned about your safety and it feels really awkward and I'm super uncomfortable bringing it up, but I would way rather have me be uncomfortable than you be in pain and feel like you don't have anyone to talk to. Can we talk about this? Both of those scenarios are awkward and difficult. Only one of them has the chance of resolving the actual situation. Big hint here, it's the direct one. They're both awkward. They're both weird. One of them is going to alleviate the awkward. And one of them is going to deepen it. Make good choices. (laughs) Remember who you are. Um, And then to what you, what you said a minute ago with like, when I was talking about, um, you know, contact your, the crisis text line to find out what is it like when I, you know, if I'm feeling unsafe or I'm feeling suicidal, or I just need somebody to talk to, what's the process? What can I expect? Um, And you had said, this is actually a really good thing to do for all of life. Like learn about grief, learn about communication styles, learn about having challenging conversations and embracing how awkward it is to do that before you need it. So I talk about that stuff as a fire drill of love, right? Like why do we practice fire drills? We practice fire drills so that in the event of an emergency, these skills aren't new. You don't want to have to learn where the fire exits are when the building's on fire. You will if you have to, it's okay but it's much better both for your nervous system and for your escape to know what to do, to have some familiarity with the escape plan before you need it. So the same thing is true in grief. This is why we talk, this is why, so when I do, um, interviews and media requests and we do PR stuff, people are always like, well, where are the grieving people hanging out? We should be talking to the grieving people. I'm like, okay, first of all, the grieving people are hanging out with me. I'm already talking to them. Second, The way that we make things better for grieving people is to get everybody talking about grief. You have to bring the conversation out into the world because otherwise we're only talking to the people who have already joined this camp and that's not going to change the world. If you want to have a world where whatever you're going through is heard and validated and supported and acknowledged, then let's start practicing that world right now. Let's start practicing that world on low stakes, low consequences things so that we increase our skill set, we increase our strength, we increase our knowledge. So that in the statistically unlikely but still quite possible event that your child is diagnosed with a rare disease, or your sister is killed in a crosswalk, or you're in a landslide and things go sideways, these skills aren't new to you. You know that whatever you experience as a result of your loss is normal and healthy, even though it's messy as fuck. And you know how to hear someone when they share their experience with you.
0: I'm like that GIF with that baby waving its hands in the air at church, like, (laughs) yes, Megan, yes. And I love that you break it down to a simple fire drill example. Big red fire truck,
1: yes. There are easy ways to do this, right? um in the pre-covid world i used to tell people to go pain spotting which is you know you're out in your general life and just listen listen to how many times you hear statements of pain we hear pain all the time we just don't register it as pain right so again pre-covid times you're in line at the at the coffee shop and you you know, you see the barista every other day because you're trying to keep your costs low and not go every day, 14 times a day, but you're in there and you see the barista and you ask them how their day is. And they say, not that great. My, uh, my dog was up sick all night. And then my husband overslept and you know, the kids lost their homework and everything has been kind of sideways. And I got here late and my boss is pissed off at me. Our normal response is to say, at least the sun is out today and you're probably off work soon. You just missed your daily practice. What that person just said to you was a statement of pain. In fact, multiple statements of pain. Start recognizing those low stakes, low consequences, hear them every day, statements of pain, and play around with a different response. It's not your fault that you impulsively cheer somebody up or dismiss their pain or start talking about your own life. It's not your fault. That's the way you've been taught. It is your responsibility to do something different once you realize that what you've been taught does not work. So you play around with it, right? We don't have in-person coffee shops right now. We have zoom dates. Okay, fine. You can still be listening for pain in the virtual world. You get onto a meeting call with your coworkers or your family group or whatever, and you ask somebody how their day is. And they say, not that great. The dog was sick all night and blah, 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 blah. And now I've got like, Two meetings, I have to reschedule. What are you going to do? Are you going to tell them to look on the bright side or cheer up, or at least they have a stable Wi Fi connection and they can have these meetings in the first place? Or are you going to practice? Are you going to say something like, that sounds really hard, and leave a space for that person to feel heard? It is a tiny, momentary interaction that builds your interpersonal muscles, it builds your skill set. And it makes you more prepared, not completely prepared because no one is prepared. It makes you more prepared for those higher stakes, emotionally important and powerful interactions where we really need you to show up for yourself and the people you care about. Practice now.
0: That's so good. Don't miss your moment to practice. I love that. Exactly. I'm going to have everybody call me today with their moments and I want to practice all day.
1: (laughs) You don't even have to have them be (laughs) active participants in it. This is like one of the beauties of this, right? Like you don't have to let them know that you're doing anything different unless you want to. But as a social experiment, start playing with it. What happens? What happens when you start responding to pain statements differently? I'm not going to tell you the answer, but I think it's a really cool experiment to see what happens. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, it builds
0: that muscle memory, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you do evolve and
1: get better at those situations and how you show up. Yeah. Better, not perfect. Yeah. And I, I say that mostly at myself most of the time. So I do this for a living and I still fuck it up. <laughs> the difference- You're perfect, Megan. Most of the time, the difference most of the time is that I realize I did it And I will name it and apologize and make it right and move forward. Now there are absolutely times when I haven't noticed it because by definition, I haven't noticed it. So I don't know that I did it. So again, progress, not perfection. I've been practicing that for enough years now that when I don't do it, there's like an early warning system in me that like pokes at me and goes like, dude, what an (laughs) asshole. Like, do you realize you just did that? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I realize I just did that. I don't, care. Um, So, you know, sometimes that happens too, just because I'm a little prickly at times because we're human. And and sometimes my dog didn't sleep all night and I'm grumpy. Um, But this, this is the thing, right? Like that you can't do this 100% perfectly like that, that doesn't exist, but we can aim towards better. We can aim towards more skill. We can aim towards um, delivering the love and care and support that we most want to give in better, more efficient, ways. And as with anything else, any other blind spots that we have being willing to apologize and understand how you're going to attempt to do things different moving forward. If somebody points out to you that your best intentions weren't so helpful, that's how it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Can you tell everybody...
0: How they can find you and a little bit about refuge in grief if they sure. want to explore a practice with you.
1: Yeah. So the main website is refugeingrief.com. We're on um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Refuge in Grief. And that's really like the, the grievers' community. So um, Instagram is actually where we're most active. My favorite campaign that we've been running for a couple of years is the, is Project Perfectly Normal. And it's on the website, it's on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but, um, it's part of that, what you and I have been talking about with, we have to start normalizing grief and talking about what it's really like and what power there is in saying, you know, this thing that you think you're the only one experiencing, that's actually part of normal, healthy grief and the the relief that people feel, um, when they're told that they're normal. So that's a, a great way to start sort of interacting with the community and get a sense of the way that we talk about grief in the community, really based on uh, normalizing the experience and also some skill building in there and helping helping change the world around the grieving person. So you'll see all of that on all of the social channels and on the website. There's the Writing Your Grief course. Um I say this a lot when I describe the Writing Your Grief course. So I've created a lot of things over the last several years, and the that Writing Your Grief course is still, I think, the best thing that I've that I've made. Um, the writing prompts are awesome; they're great. But the the big thing is really the community that forms in the the live sessions, the live online sessions. The, it's just a really magical, wonderful space. It's what happens when you let people tell the truth about their own experience without trying to dismiss it or give advice or any of those things it's it's a really powerful experience to be allowed to tell the truth and have people just say yep that sucks i see you it seems like a very small thing but it is the most powerful medicine we have as i've said before so you can find everything about the writing your grief course on there we open a new session roughly every five weeks Uh, the newest session just started. So the next one, well, you can find the opening dates on the, on the website, because I'm not sure when y'all will be listening to this, but always find the open dates and the next registration session on the website, refugeandgrief.com. You can also check out the PBS documentary, Speaking Grief. And it's a fantastic documentary talking about grief in all its different shapes and forms and the ways that it shows up in families. You can watch the documentary in its entirety at SpeakingGrief.org, And at that website, there's also a lot of different resources and like secondary videos, great conversation starters. If you want to be talking with friends or family about your own experience of grief and how we support each other and show up for each other, really, really great resources there. So those are the things that I would check out. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I always forget something. So you can check our social channels and to to figure out what the hell I forgot because there's always something.
0: Thank you. I'll have all of that attached in our show notes, too. And I have sent your book to so many people, I can't even count. So if you're listening and I didn't send you one and you need it, let me know. (laughs) It's called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm just so grateful to you, Megan. I could literally talk to you all day, every day. Thank you for taking the time to speak on this important subject and to change the narrative of grief and to be such a support system for all of us.
1: You're so welcome. It's not me.